Hey, everyone. Welcome to Behind the Tour podcast. This is your host, Aaron Kronk. And today we have a special podcast that will be in two different parts, part one and part two of episode 31, Stops Along the Underground Railroad. Well, hey, everyone. Welcome again to Behind the Tour, the podcast from American Christian Tours that goes behind the scenes of the most iconic sites, historic characters, and true stories in American history to discover how God has been at work since the very beginning. Now, our desire and purpose is to provide insight for today and hope for the future days as we look at history from a biblical worldview. This is Aaron Kronk, your host. Today, we've got a great episode. I hope you guys are going to really enjoy this. I'm joined by Jay Prophet and Krista Wenzel. Krista, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks, Aaron. Excited to be here. We have some fun stuff to cover today. <sighs> I am so happy you're here. And today's episode is called Behind the Underground Railroad. Krista, what, what exactly is the Underground Railroad? Give us a little bit of context. Well, the Underground Railroad was a term that refers to the efforts of enslaved African Americans up until the end of the Civil War to gain their freedom by escaping from their place of bondage and fleeing to a place of freedom. Oftentimes, that place of freedom would be just northern states, but then as different laws were passed that we'll talk about today, it ended up being up to Canada and other areas that really just welcomed people and allowed them to have freedom. And I think as Christians, um, we were talking about before we hit record, just the freedom that we have in Christ and that our slavery, if we have any, should be only to Christ. And so it's amazing to look at, um, kind of study how people living through these times had to take action that would be very, very bold to take today, um, you know, to help people knowing that not only, you know, if it was white people helping black people escape the, you know, not only just public shaming that they would get, but also fines and all these different things. But then as a black person who is escaping what they would be suffering would be physical harm, their family's harm. They would be risking everything for freedom. And so it's such an amazing uh, subject matter that we have, that we've really, you know, that we get to unpack today. It was started in 1831 officially. Um, there had already been other things going, but the term Underground Railroad was officially began in 1831 following the Second Great Awakening, which resulted in the 1830 abolitionist movement. And we're going to talk about, uh, you know, too, maybe some of our listeners might not understand some of the terms that we're using. So, you know, we're going to talk about some of the some of the names and terms that were used and still are used within the context of the Underground Railroad and maybe even some kind of misconceptions upon what what the Underground Railroad is. Jay, this is this was a system existing in really the northern states. Uh, before the Civil War, uh, which escaped slaves from the South, were secretly helped uh, by essentially sympathetic Northerners in defiance of like even the Fugitive Slave Acts that had been put into uh, practice and uh, to reach places of safety in the North. So, Jay, what are some of the places that these freedom seekers sought? What, what directions were they going? Hey, Aaron and Krista, it is good to be with you. You know, it was really complicated. I mean, we've, we're focusing on kind of the official Underground Railroad. We have to remember that this was going on way back in the late 1600s. There were 
uh, enslaved people that made their way south from like the Carolinas and Georgia. And they actually went into Florida because Florida was under Spanish control. They were letting slaves come and actually live free because they were fighting against the British. So you had all these uh, slaves going down, and and that was really them on their own. A lot of them were helped by Native um, Indians, you know, to get through some of those swampy areas and places like that. Even out in Texas, they had their own version of the Underground Railroad that was taking place where slaves in Texas were making their way down towards Mexico, which was really dangerous because they had to cross, you know, the, the desert land that was hot, very little water and trying to get into Mexico, and the Mexicans were helping them. So this was going on kind of all over the country, and even they had um, they had an underground railroad called the Saltwater Underground Railroad because there were slaves that would get out into the Caribbean, and they'd make their way over to different islands to try to escape. So, so many people trying to escape. It was a really fluid system. It wasn't like a defined route. And do you guys remember this when you were little kids, you heard about Underground Railroad for the first time? Like immediately, you know, we all are like, oh, it's a train. Yeah. (laughs) You know, like, (laughs) didn't you really like think it was a train at first? Oh, I probably did until college. Yeah. I mean, absolutely. (laughs) And, And the reason why it was called Underground Railroad is because the literal railroad was coming into existence. So they they termed a lot of things after that, but it had nothing to do with the train. It didn't follow a track. Uh, It was really following natural pathways and, you know, trails, rivers, canals, bays, sometimes on a ferry or maybe a river crossing. They used all this train terminology uh, in the Underground Railroad. Yeah, though this was really neither underground nor a railroad. Um, It was named uh, that because its activities were really carried out in secret, secret. Uh, darkness, kind of clandestine. Um, and because railway terms were used uh, in reference uh, to the, really the conduct of the system, like you said, Jay. Yeah. So I just think I look at, you know, like the various routes were lines, stopping places were called stations. Those who helped along the way were called conductors. Uh, and they're uh, the people, um, the freedom seekers were actually known as packages or freight from what I've read and the network of routes extended like Jay, like you said, all, all different directions through really the 14 Northern States at the time and something they called uh, the promised land, which was really Canada (laughs) Yeah, because future uh, slave hunters that would be hunting the fugitive slaves would not be able to get them if they reach Canada. And even in some circles that they referred to Canada um, in code as Canaan, because, you know, often this is very much the equivalent of what was going on during the biblical times with Moses, which we'll, you know, talk about Harriet Tubman after a while and how she was referred to as Moses. So going to Canaan, and, you know, there's a very biblical undercurrent that was going on as well, which I yeah. think is just, yeah, it's just, it's exciting too. When you look and go, I don't think I could make it from my house on foot to my nearest target without getting lost much less these people are going over hundreds of miles, uh, usually in the winter as because there is so much more darkness. So they're going, following stars, figuring out these routes to go, okay, we're going to make it from this house to that house. A lot of these um, enslaved people coming out, they were often not, you know, 
able to read. So, you know, there would be all these things of going, you know, they would get to a town and, you know, maybe they'd see a sign that would say what town it was or, you know, something like that and not even being able to read. And, you know, the uncertainty and the fear that would be just hunting you at every point, the immense pressure. It is a story of the human spirit, undoubtedly. I mean, Moses and the children of Israel, at least God kind of came and took the Red Sea and swiped out the Egyptians who were searching for him. They didn't have that. They were often right on their tails. Um, you know, the stories that you hear of how they hid from different people who were hunting them and all these things. It's just absolutely amazing. Yeah. And Krista, you're going to give us a little bit more, well, our listeners, a little bit more information on, uh, I mean, there were so many figures, both that were free and enslaved and, and black and white that were part of the Underground Railroad. And really our, our, our primary focus is is kind of, you know, from 1800 to 1860. So about a 60 year period of time. And like Jay, you said that, uh, you know, there were certainly, you know, elements of the Underground Railroad that were started before that. The formal, ter- formal terminology started being used uh, probably what about the 1830s? Okay, guys. So let's uh, let's just briefly talk about some of the terms that were used in the Underground Railroad within the, that context. So a route on the Underground Railroad would would start at the place of enslavement. The term "slave" or "enslaved person" defined as uh, a person who was forced to perform labor or services really against their will or under the threat of physical mistreatment, separation from family or loved ones, or death. And millions of kidnapped Africans uh, were transported to the Americas and West Indies, and their descendants were held in bondage through the American Civil War. So enslaved people were considered to be the property of their owners, and as such could be bought and sold at auctions. Enslaved people needed travel passes to leave a plantation. Uh, they could not legally marry. They had no legal rights over their children or partners who could also be bought and sold at will, and they had no freedom of religion. They weren't educated, and only a few were able to read or write. And owners had the right to punish as they saw fit, including uh, whipping and beating. Well, another term, the enslaver or slave owners or masters, an enslaver exerted power over those that they kept in bondage. And many documents will refer to enslavers as slave owners or masters. And a station, uh, as I previously mentioned, provided protection for traveling freedom seekers. Stations could be a basement, uh, cabins, homes, barns, caves, any other site that provided an element of security along the pathway to freedom. Then there's the term operative or station master, someone that was an accomplice, helped a freedom seeker escape They could help arrange the escape or serve as a conductor on the railroad, helping people that were escaping. Well, if escaping freedom seekers were caught, the operatives might be able to pay fines, help provide a a lawyer or even find funds to purchase from the enslaver. And the station master provided shelter or a place to hide uh, and information on safe routes and worked with other station masters to help provide safe passage again to that point of freedom. Do you guys have anything to add? When you're reading about the enslaved people and what all the things that they couldn't do, they're all horrible. But the one that really stuck out to me was that you had no legal rights with your children or partners, and you were completely at the whim of the person that owned you. I mean, your your wife or your husband or any children that you had, they could just be taken and sold. 
you know, ha- halfway across yeah. the country and you had absolutely no control over that. And, you know, knowing when that happened, that you very likely might not ever see them again. I think that would have been one of the really heart-wrenching parts of being enslaved. Yeah, and even if they were just sold to a plantation 10 miles down the road, there were right. chances you would, right. I mean, that may as well be halfway across the nation because yeah, of yeah. the difficulty. They didn't have, you know, days off or, you know, even the thought that, you know, a lot of these workers would be working from sun up to sundown. Well, that's if you worked in the field. You know, if you didn't, if you were in the house, there's uh, Harriet Tubman, again, and is a great example of so many um, different harrowing experiences of not only escaping slavery, but slavery itself. She was beat over the head so much when she would be taking care of children in the middle of the night that, um, you know, eventually, like, she just had these horrible headaches and she had a trauma with it. And it's just, it's kind of this whole idea that whatever you know, it wasn't a nine to five job. It was whatever you were told to do, you had to do it. Um, the horrific amount of rape that went on, um, the beatings that went on, you know, Harriet Tubman started wearing more clothes when she'd go to take care of children just to stop, to stop the beating from being so painful. So it's not, um, you know, we very much, we had talked about this, the Christianization of going, well, you know, a lot of them were treated well, you know, of slaves, like we kind of get in this realm of like, we try and justify it in our mind of going, America couldn't have been that bad. America wasn't so bad, but people are evil. That, that is the evilness of sin within that, um, you know, even just, we go through these terms, but to, to put yourself in those positions, it's horrific. And like Jay said, the thought of being, you know, the worst would be the separation. That was always the breaking point for a lot of these people. It was never their own physical harm. It was the thought of being separated from their family yeah. that they got yeah. to that desperate measure of escaping. Yeah, Krista. And the stories are just amazing. There's so many stories. And again, this is why history matters, right? The yeah. more we read these stories and understand the context of what happened um, and place it in its proper context, uh, the better the better off we're going to be as far as understanding. Well, there's two terms, two more terms I want to just give really quickly, you guys. And one is abolitionist. And we could probably do a whole podcast on just abolitionists and abolition, uh, really, that started in in Great Britain, uh, because they actually abolished slavery over in Great Britain. And uh, we kind of use the template, or the abolitionists kind of use the template here in America. But an abolitionist is a person really opposed to slavery, and they were many times politically active, and they worked to abolish the legal framework of slavery. Uh, abolitionists um, may have physically helped people escape from slavery, or they may have only been involved in writing, speaking out, or other forms of expressing opposition against slavery. Well, and too, like even with the term abolition, you have to think back to the founding of America. 1776 is everything is going on in Philadelphia. We're trying to split away from Great Britain because we're under their control. Think of this, 1775 is the first abolition society formed in America. You know, this is something, you know, on the adverse part of that negative that I talked about, you have that positive part of people saw that what was going on was wrong and they tried to do something from the start. So it's a, you know, the abolition story, like you said, that is an amazing, amazing story Mm -hmm. of the abolition uh, within America's history. Yeah, Krista, and on that note, um, I don't want to belabor this too much because we've got so much to uh, to go through here. But, you know, America's abolition, abolitionist movement did have its roots really in England. 
where slavery was finally outlawed, I believe in the year 1833, which is significant for mm-hmm. a number of reasons here, even here in America. The, the Society for the Abolition of Slavery in England was instrumental in the 1700s in so many people that came together with abolishing the transatlantic slave trade and then eventually the slavery in Great Britain. Well, and an amazing movie to watch for people who haven't is that a movie amazing grace Mm -hmm. which tells the whole story of william wilberforce william wilberforce and um i would highly recommend that yeah it's an awesome it's a great movie and another one that i can think of since we're talking about movies now is uh the amistad oh yeah absolutely that one is for sure proceed with caution for sensitive audiences because they do not cover any aspect of how horrific the slavery was. Yeah. But yeah, it, it is amazing. It's it's almost worth it in a way of just going, you know what? It's we all need to it's kind of that necessary evil to see really to understand. Yeah. It's yes. horrible. Well guys, we have one last term to define and that is of emancipation. And emancipation, this term is often used to refer to either individual or group freedom. Um, And it really, to emancipate, really means to set free. Many people have heard of the Emancipation Proclamation signed by uh, Abraham Lincoln in 1863, declaring an end to slavery in states that were in rebellion against the United States. The National Fugitive Slave Act of 1850, it was actually a slave law that was passed, in Congress added more this was huge. And I'm sure you guys would agree. Just, it was huge in reference to adding more of a driving force to the Underground yeah. Railroad. And the new law added uh, United States commissioners to the usual courts to issue warrants for the arrest of fugitives um, and certificates for certificates for the removal to the states and territories where they had escaped from. Yeah, because before then, like if you were an enslaved person and you got into a state that was a free state, you were kind of, you could kind of catch your breath a little bit. Mm-hmm. And then what happened, like you just said, they passed that fugitive slave law in 1850. So this is like 10 years before the Civil War. And all of a sudden, enslaved people that had escaped to the North now these bounty hunters, slave hunters, they could come up into the North. And if they found you, the law supported them hauling you off back to where you, where you had come from. And now people that had helped hide enslaved people or had helped rescue freedom seekers, they could get a thousand dollar fine. Now remember this is in the 1850s, thousand dollar fine, they could get imprisoned for six months and they could get court damages um, for each person that was lost. So, you know, you think of the average person on the street who maybe would have helped enslave people prior to that. All of a sudden now the government's like, hey, if we catch you helping people, you know, you can get a thousand dollar fine. You can go to prison for six months. You could have to pay for all these enslaved people. I mean, what did that do to... Um, people that were normally helping. Right. And that's the equivalent of $36,000 today. $1,000 then. Yeah, it's it's $36,000 today. Yeah. And I think that that also plays to that overarching story of our connection to Great Britain, because in 1833, when the slavery was ended in Great Britain, it was enacted then right away in 1834. That's when people started going to Canada because it was under British rule. And so that kind of amazing aspect of how it all kind of fits together. 
That's usually when things happen is when the heat gets turned up because then you have the people that really believe in something, they kind of dig in and get stronger. Amen. And, uh, you know, it mo- it makes things move and happen. So that's what you're seeing where hundreds of enslaved people that had escaped to the northern states now are pushing up into Canada. Mm-hmm. Well, And the Underground Railroad just got more invigorated. Well, and that's a concept, right, that runs throughout history, uh, not just U.S. history, but world history, is that God created us. Um, and I think our founders did get this right, you know, f- uh, for the pursuit of, of freedom, of true true liberty. And what that means when you take start taking those liberties away from people, uh, then they're they're going to they're going to react at some point. They're gonna just keep you know keep moving forward. Well, and don't you think too that the fabric of how the Constitution was built is they didn't do anything with slavery, you know, per saying that it was illegal, but they didn't also condone it. And so they're like, we'll just leave it up to each of the individual states to take care of it. So those northern states, you know, what was it? Seven states by 1800 had no slavery. Slavery was illegal. So they're like, you know, almost in that way of that first generation, like, see, we did something good because we let those states just have their freedom. Well, a couple of generations later, all of a sudden the Fugitive Slave Act comes in 1850, the fires turned up and all of a sudden people can't just sit behind and be you know, kind of justified and going, well, you know, that's okay for South Carolina, but we're free up here. And, you know, I knew someone three houses down that knew, knew a slave who escaped here. And like, you could kind of, you know, in your way, just sit back and relax. But then all of a sudden, Fugitive Slave Act comes and people were not happy with it. And I think um, like what Jay was saying, a lot of people started helping more than they would have otherwise. Right. Well, good stuff, guys. Well, this next segment is called Behind the Problem, you guys. We're going to just take a few minutes to discuss um, or to think about what what the the problem of slavery was in America. And, you know, our nation was founded on ideas that were rooted in divine principles and the recognition that all men are created equal um, because God created them, right? So the presence of slavery at our nation's founding was really about mankind's ability and willingness to sin. Uh, God's word tells us for all have sinned. Um, We're all sinners. We have that nature. Well, the history of black enslavement in our country shows us clearly that even in a great nation with, I think, right intentions at its founding, sin was present. And freedom is important because God gave man the ability to choose. And people can't be denied their ability to choose. But in making choices, people can't escape their responsibility to choose good over evil. I think this is a lesson that we've got to understand. In this segment, we are going to talk about the Underground Railroad locations along the tours that American Christian Tours gives uh, out on the eastern seaboard. And we, we travel to a lot of locations, don't we, Jay, Krista, and um, there's yeah. a lot of places that we go to that uh, I've not even been aware of some of the Underground Railroad history that are in these areas. So we're going to spend some time here uh, just giving our listeners a little bit of information about some of these locations and why they're meaningful uh, within the context of our tours and where we go. So much of uh, you know, much of the Underground Railroad overlays so much of the northeastern section of the U.S., Um, areas that were free states and that were on the way towards Canada. 
So Jay, why don't you uh, give us the first one? What's what's number one? This came from a book that was written by Harriet Beecher Stowe. She had written Uncle Tom's Cabin, which is a famous, famous book, but she wrote a lot of other books. She also wrote one called The Key to Uncle Tom's Cabin, which was a nonfiction. And when she shares all of her first source documents that helped her write Uncle Tom's Cabin. And one of the stories in there is about the pearl. And I was really excited when I found out about this because it took place in Washington, D.C., and a lot of our tours are uh, held in Washington, D.C. And it was a really well-documented escape attempt. And it took place on April 15th in 1848. What it was is there was a, a schooner that came up to Washington, D.C. named the Pearl. And the captain of it was very uh, friendly to abolitionist thoughts. And he had been contacted by a former slave of Dolly Madison. And the whole conversation was whether or not they could use the schooner to help uh, freedom seekers get out of slavery and up to the north. So the plan was the schooner would dock, freedom seekers would get on it, they would take them down the Potomac over into the Chesapeake Bay and then all the way up to Philadelphia. The schooner arrived, and if any of you have ever been to D.C. recently, you know, they have this big wharf on the, the water. It's all been remodeled and refurbished and redone in the last couple of years, and they've actually named a little street there called Pearl because that's about the location of where this took place. The boat arrived, and then I have to tell you a little pre-story before I tell you the rest of the story. So there was a family living about 14 miles out of D.C. The dad, Paul, had been a, a slave. And the woman who owned him uh, died, and she released him into freedom through her will. So he had this little cabin, and he was married to a slave lady named Millie. Um, her slave owners allowed her to live with him at, so she could come home at night to Paul, but she had to go back and you know work unslaved lady at the estate that had her. They decided to have children which I think was a really big decision for uh, enslaved couples because they knew that if they had a child, that child was being born into the system of enslavement. And they ended up having 14 children. They were very thankful when they all reached a certain age that their children weren't taken away and sold down into the deep South, but were put into homes in the D.C. area. So they were at least kind of close by. Some of the older children had actually raised enough money to buy their freedom, which people, uh, enslaved people could do at that time. But there were six Edmondson children that all got on this ship, the, the Pearl. Enslaved people from all over the D.C. area were, were quietly uh, sneaking down to this ship and getting on board. And, of course, they all had to do it, like, out on one night, you know, because they didn't want to be detected. The ship took off. But it had some problems right away. One of them was it was spotted coming into D.C. and people were very suspicious of it. And second of all, in the morning, the slave owners uh, realized that their slaves had escaped. And third, there was a slave man named Justin Diggs, and he was a carriage driver, and he had brought uh, some women down to the dock with their luggage to escape, and they didn't have money to pay him. 
So he was really angry about that. And so when all these slaveholders were looking for their slaves the next morning, he said, well, don't worry about going out into the woods to try to find them because they've all gotten on the schooner, the Pearl, and they headed down the Potomac River. So there was a family in Georgetown, uh, slave owners that owned a steamboat, and they headed down to um, find them. And the other thing the schooner had a problem with is when it got down to the Chesapeake Bay, there was a big storm. So instead of going out into the bay, they parked the boat in a little uh, harbor. And so they were easily found that next uh, morning. There were like 34 guys on the steamboat. They tied up the pearl. They brought it back, towed it back up to D.C. And all these 77 on board were all bought by slave traders um, to be traded down into the south. And among them were the two Edmondson sisters, uh, Mary and Emily. They were taken to a slave uh, pen over in Alexandria, Virginia, which is right across the river from uh, Washington, D.C., and they were brought all the way down to New Orleans to be sold. Their family was devastated. And then, miraculously, there was a big yellow fever outbreak in New Orleans. So the owner, Mr. Bruin, he brought them back up to Alexandria. And by that time, they had gotten money raised uh, through the Stowe, Beecher Stowe family. And they were able to purchase uh, the freedom of those two girls and they um, went off to college and uh, were successful. So the Pearl is just one idea of how the Potomac River was used as part of the Underground Railroad. Washington, D.C. had a very aggressive network in the Underground Railroad because it was close to Maryland. And yeah, Jay, that's an amazing story. I can't, I just, boy, you know, my mind goes so many different directions when I read stories or hear stories like that. These paths along the way to freedom, you know, what would make uh, a person take these kinds of risks mm-hmm. uh, to, to travel long distances? And from what I've read, you know, this, Jay, that was a, an example of one of the larger groups of people seeking freedom. But a lot of times it was just one person. Mm-hmm. It would just be one person, yeah. usually the men. Uh, that would leave uh, a plantation uh, and flee, and uh, they would start that long journey. Well, Jay, there's another spot on uh, <clears throat> or within uh, Washington, D.C. area called Anacostia. Why don't you give us a quick story? Well, what's over there, and some of our groups have gone there, there's the Frederick Douglass National Historic Site, and that's where um, Frederick Douglass lived, and he was very involved in the abolition movement. His The house there is not really part of helping freedom seekers. Uh, when he was involved with the Underground Railroad, he lived up in, um, in Rochester, New York, and he had his home was a station on the Underground Railroad. But He had been um, enslaved and he escaped in Maryland and then he went up to Massachusetts and then New York and he became an orator and he went around and spoke to people. He published newspapers. His most famous was called the North Star. And uh, even though, you know, his house wasn't part of it, it's just a place where you can remember someone that was very actively involved in the Underground Railroad. And he also was made a an ambassador to Haiti. So very involved in um, our country. That's amazing. Well, and Frederick Douglass, um, you know, even that Haiti kind of connection, Haiti was the first nation in the world that 
made slavery slavery illegal. So they were the very first ones. Yeah, and right. we have to remember too, in this time of, you know, the world, it wasn't like America was, you know, losing ground on, you know, having this outdated form. America was number six in the world for creating laws against slavery. So this is a very new concept and America was actually kind of on the forefront of, of some of this. I mean, you have to look at Britain, you know, the sun never set on the British empire because it was so big and had so much. So when they got rid of slavery, that was huge because of, you know, just how far reaching it was. But I just think of God's providence within the, within the person of who Frederick Douglass was, that it was God's providence. It was an amazing, Frederick Douglass was an amazing person uh, and God put him in a place for such a time as that was uh, to really be one of the one of the f- foremost abolitionists of that day and that age, um, and he would remain a prominent leader uh, throughout almost all of his life, and even after the Civil War. Uh, and again, I can't help but think that God put him there. You know, it's, uh, it wasn't by mistake, uh, and that his escape. Uh, as a freedom seeker from slavery uh, was was huge um, in terms of who he would become. Well, Krista, why don't you give us another route on the Underground Railroad, one that uh, a lot of times we might pass by on one of our Yeah, tours. we'll pass by or actually eat in. So there's two spots that I really <laughs> want to talk about that are just so interesting because as a tour guide uh, for, you know, so many years now, I didn't really realize this significance of the role that they played. So one of the places is right in Gettysburg, Pennsylvania, and it's the Dobbin House. The Dobbin House is now a restaurant, and they kind of term it a restaurant as old as our nation. You know, it's been there forever, and it is the oldest building in Gettysburg. It's native stone walls. It has seven fireplaces and hand-carved woodwork. All look recently restored, and it's absolutely beautiful. Full of simple character, which allows it to function as an authentic colonial tavern. Um, the importance, though, is that it was a part of the Underground Railroad. And today, you can actually go into the restaurant and see this area in between um, the stairs that they were able to hide slaves in, should you know someone come by looking for slaves. Which again, that that concept of not only the person escaping freedom. But those who are harboring the slaves, how like just intense that is. I mean, I think as a child, I developed anxiety from playing hide and go seek. I cannot. This is high stakes hide and go seek at the you know the biggest form. And so it's such an amazing thing to think. Okay, don't breathe. You're in between the floors of two of two you know the floors of this of this two story building, and you know, if you, if you sneeze game over and you go back to where you came from with tons of punishments and all the rest. So um, it's just absolutely amazing to think that, you know, our, our people coming on the trip, like we can go and just have a really nice meal there, but also the significance of what those halls, um, you know, those walls, really the stories that they could, they could speak is just pretty. Amazing. Yeah. By, by the way, Chris, I loved your analogy of hide and seek. That's just uh, <laughs> you know, kind of a hide and seek that has, has some pretty grave consequences to being found. Oh, yeah. And even the second one, um, it's not it's it's pretty amazing. So when we think of Boston, what do we think about the you know Boston Tea Party? We think of revolutionary times a lot of times, but the seeds of freedom that were planted there really have lasted throughout the ages. And in 1742, so predating, um, you know, even the revolutionary time, Fenuel Hall was built and it's been a long and cherished history within Boston. Now, very much for its 
focal point for colonists protesting the British Parliament in the years leading up to the American Revolution. It was this huge building in this square, and it's there today. It's a part of the Freedom Trail. Um, when you come with us on our tours up to Boston, undoubtedly, we're going to be stopping and having free time there. There's shops there. There's restaurants there. You know, there's oftentimes a lot of people out there like juggling in the spring. And, you know, it's just it's a very, very popular area. But its popularity is not to be outdone with the significance that it had. So um, Faneuil Hall, you know, even with all of the rest of its great history in colonial time, during the Underground Railroad time, it served as a place where people would gather and they would talk to one another about this can't be going on. We need to help these people. And they started gathering and having all these different, um, you know, protests, peaceful protests going on. And in 1843, they had, get this, they had a petition from this protest birthed out of Fenuel Hall that had 64,000 people signing a petition. To give you an idea, 64,000, that sounds like a lot of people, right? Well, between 1840 and 1850, there was only 70,000 people who lived in Boston. That's huge. I mean, 64,000, that's a huge, huge, huge number within this population who are saying, we need to undo some of the laws because the Fugitive Slave Act of 1850 had been predated by one of 1793. The 1793 Fugitive Slave Act had actually had someone be captured up in Boston and the people of Boston were outraged. They're like, our friend George is being sent back to where he is. We have to stop this. And so Boston, Bostonians came together at Fenuel Hall and they had this petition, this protest, the people were talking and they were able to help their lawmakers within uh, Massachusetts, which again, their state house is less than half a mile down the road, come together and start helping people have even state laws to help people be able to help people within the Underground Railroad. So it's amazing. These two areas, you know, we just kind of go like, oh, my goodness, you know, we had a big day learning at Gettysburg. We're on the battlefield or, you know, we've been all over the Freedom, the Freedom Trail today. These two very distinct locations where we eat today have huge implications on what, um, you know, the Underground Railroad was and really the plight of freedom. And that they played within that has been amazing. Yeah, Krista, I'm never going to look at the Dobbin House the same again. <laughs> I will never look at the Dobbin House the same again either, Aaron. Hey, this feels like a great place to stop our first part of the two-part Stops Along the Underground Railroad episode. Aaron and Jay, this has been such a great conversation, and I can't wait to continue our discussion soon. Everyone, make sure to join us for the next episode where we will pick up with more sites, more stories, and more behind the tour.